John Triwola, Sam Davidson, and Brian McAllister strode into the dark sanctuary with a spotlight shining on each of them as they regally sang out, We Three Kings of Orient are. It was always a goosebumps moment for me. That was many years ago when the church used to mark the first Sunday of Advent with an evening hanging of the greens ceremony. And even though we don't do that particular service anymore, I still miss those wise men. After all, they had the best costumes of anyone in the pageant. And we really don't pay much attention to the wise man most of the season of Christmas. After all, the Bible tells us that they showed up much later, much later than the angels or the shepherds. Maybe Jesus was already even a toddler by the time they showed up. This time of year in the church, we mostly focus on the story that Luke gives us about the angel of the Lord startling the shepherds in the fields while they were tending to their flocks. And we picture those shepherds moving over to worship the child, to visit the child in Bethlehem. But Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, tells a very different story. In the story from Matthew, there are no shepherds. Mary and Joseph and Jesus are mute. They get no speaking parts in the pageant. The main characters in Matthew's story of Christmas are these, Herod and the wise men. They are the ones who do all the talking. They are the ones who advance the drama. First, let's look at Herod. I have never seen a pageant where Herod got a part. And yet, in Matthew's story, he, tell, he plays a very big part. He's a villain, and none of us wants to see a villain in the pageant at Christmas time. Herod heard through the grapevine that some wise men, be they astrologers or magicians or astronomers, some kind of fortune tellers, had arrived in Jerusalem. And so Herod secretly summoned them to the palace. Why secretly? Because Herod didn't want word to get out that the king of the Jews had been born because Herod was the king of the Jews. And if a new king had been born, he would suddenly have his regime toppled. He would lose all his prestige and his power and control. And so he tells the wise men a lie. He says, go. Search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, text me, and I will load up my chariots and rush over so that I too can pay him homage. And the wise men smiled and they nodded and they winked at one another on the way out of the palace because they had absolutely no intention of revealing to Herod the coordinates where the star stopped over the house that Jesus was in. This would remain top secret. And so the wise men continue on in their journey, and they have no GPS, but they have this star. And when the star stopped, they knew, this is it. This is the place. And so they knock on the door of that house, and they go inside, and they kneel down before the child, and they pay him homage. And then they tear open the wrapping paper, and they reveal the gifts that they have brought from the Orient, Gold, as if for a king. Frankincense, as if to burn incense in the sanctuary. And myrrh, as if one might need that to heal people and anoint them along the way. 
And then I picture it. They ask if they could hold the baby, and the wise men passed him around and gave Mary and Joseph a break for a little bit. And then they went out of their way not to go back to their home through Jerusalem, but to avoid Herod's notice because they knew that this Herod would never see in the child's eyes the joy that they had seen. I kind of wish Herod had been in the pageant because there are days when I feel a lot more like Herod than a wise man. Some of you who have traveled to the Holy Land have visited some of Herod's greatest work. You've seen that stunning seaside port called Caesarea Maritima, a gorgeous and lucrative port where they had dredged up all this area to build this beautiful port. And can you imagine the commerce that that brought in and the jobs that that provided? Or maybe you've been to his palace suspended in Masada high above the desert and you've stood there and marveled how did they build this amazing place way up high here in the desert? Or maybe you've been to the Herodian full of the tunnels and the cisterns and the chapels. You can see that Herod was a fabulous real estate developer. He wasn't perfect, but he was the puppet king of Rome. And everyone knew that Herod was bad, but that it could have been worse if Rome had removed him and he was no longer serving as a buffer between the people of Judea and the Roman Empire. And so the people decided to put up with the flawed system. And they looked the other way when Herod mis misused his power and exploited the people, and you and I sometimes do the same thing. We look the other way and we say to ourselves, well, it could be worse. Herod also talked a good game but failed to follow through on his promises. He didn't want to leave the comfort zone of his palace to go and have a face-to-face -face encounter with this newborn Messiah in the little town of Bethlehem. And we too, like Herod, often keep a safe spiritual distance from some kind of holy encounter. We intend, we have very good intentions, we intend to sign up for Bible study or a neighborhood communion group or for one of Mike's Monday night classes. We say, next year I think I'll tutor over at Hartman or I will pray more, or I'll maybe even go on a mission trip, and then somehow we don't ever get around to it. We stay inside our own palaces, be they condominiums, or homes, or apartments, or offices, because sometimes we too, like Herod, are reluctant to risk revealing our own souls one to another. We dare not kneel down in that messy straw before the infant's face of compassion and justice, and so we stay aloof. But it wasn't just Herod, you know. We are told in the Gospel of Matthew that not just Herod, but all of Judea was afraid. They were afraid of being conquered. They were afraid of losing their 401ks. They were afraid of losing their place in society, afraid for the safety of their own families. I remember how terribly afraid I was just after 9-11. It was just a few weeks after that attack on the World Trade Center and in Washington, D.C., and at that moment, there were still packages of anthrax being sent through the U.S. Postal Service, and all of us were a bit on edge. 
On a Sunday morning, someone came and tapped me on the shoulder just as the 11 o'clock service was beginning, and they pointed across the narthex at a visitor who was right back here on the back row. And I remember seeing his caramel brown skin and his salt and pepper gray hair. And a lady on the back row kindly offered him her hymnal, and she pointed to the hymn number in the bulletin and tried to welcome him into the worship and he stood there for a little bit and then he just turned around and walked out before the opening hymn had even concluded and I followed him out and just about that moment another man came walking across the parlor who also had dark skin and then a third one met him and they went out the front door and I turned around and followed them a bit panicked and wondering why would anybody leave the service at this point, we're just getting started, and so I jotted down the license plate number of the car that the three of them got into. We didn't know. Were they casing the joint? Was there anthrax here? Was there something we needed to fear? And so we called the police, and the police called the FBI. And the FBI said, well, if it was a rental car, then we will worry. But once we look up the license plate, if it was just a car, then we're not gonna worry. And they called us back and they said, it was a rental car and we're gonna track down who it was. And they called us back and they said, it was three dentists here from California for a dental convention. They were not terrorist, they were not Muslim, they were not Hindu, they were Christian. And they had heard while in town for the dental convention that we had a life-size carving of the Last Supper and they were here to pay him homage. They decided they couldn't stay for worship because the worship service was going to put them too tight on their time frame to catch their flight. We do sometimes the dumbest things when we are afraid. And I will never forget the FBI agent saying to me, why didn't you talk to them? Why didn't you talk to them? Because I was afraid. But there are other days when we ourselves experience the same kind of joy, the same kind of overwhelming energy and delight that those wise ones experienced when they came bearing gifts. Sometimes we are like them. We risk to go on a journey to an unknown land, and we seek the light of God's love, even if someone says, oh, it's foolish to follow those stars. There are times when we find within ourselves the ability to do something that we ourselves can't even quite explain, but we're sure it's the right journey to take. Recently, I read about a corporate CEO who moved beyond his own comfort zone and transformed the culture of his company and the culture of his industry. Chuck Robbins grew up on a dirt road in rural Georgia and spent his free time mending fences on his grandfather's farm. His granddad didn't make enough money as a pastor to support the family, and so he also farmed, and Chuck spent a lot of time working on that farm. When he graduated from college, Chuck taught himself code, which seemed like a new thing at the time, and he quickly rose high in the ranks of the world of technology and became an upper-level manager. One day, he was leading his team on a retreat in Florida, and they had a time marked on the calendar for team building, and Chuck assumed that meant golf. But some of his employees came to him and said, you know, 
Here in Florida, they're just now recovering from the hurricane, and there's still a lot of work to be done. What if our team building exercise was to help rebuild? And so the whole management team spent the afternoon rebuilding and repainting the YMCA. And they, that evening, they all told him that it was the best team building exercise they had ever been a part of. And so he took a risk, and it paid off. And when he became the CEO of a large company in Silicon Valley, he made a commitment to do more than make money for his shareholders. He said, quote, we have to take advantage of the power we have been given. And so his company has now achieved a 47% reduction in greenhouse gases and donated $50 million to combating homelessness in Silicon Valley and donated 424,000 hours of employee service to the wider community. There are still wise ones among us, leading us to see the star and experience the overwhelming joy. What about you and me? Are we more like Herod, trembling in fear? Or are we the wise ones following the star? Or is there a little bit of Herod's fear and a little bit of the Magi's joy within every single one of us. My son was due on December 26th, but he arrived on December 17th, a Sunday. I remember as the weekend approached, Dave told me, Carla, if you get that sermon written, then you'll probably go into labor and not have to preach it. But if you keep procrastinating and don't write it, then he won't be born until well after Christmas. And Dave was right. He came on a Sunday morning at 9.57, and I never preached that sermon I had written. It was an ordinary birth in so many ways, except that we had been told by the physicians that we only had a 50% chance of conceiving and still, throughout my 20s, I had not yet resolved my angst and the tension that I experienced with my own mother. Mom and I remained in touch, but it was often a painful interchange for both of us. Something changed at 9.57 on December 17th, the nanosecond that I held Connor in my arms for the very first time. I was overwhelmed with a love that I had not known was humanly possible. I loved this child with such passion and joy that I could not even fathom it. It pulsed in my veins. And at that precise moment, I realized this is exactly how my mother felt about me and always had. And I loved her back unconditionally. She didn't need to be perfect. Her great love was enough. <laughs>